0: We're finishing up in Matthew chapter 2, the last few verses of that chapter, 19 through 23. Hear the word of God. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in the town called Nazareth. Nazareth. So he so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we spend some time uh, the last few weeks and even this evening looking at the story of the birth of your son, we are quite aware that uh, we have misconceptions at times. And so I ask that uh, you, by your word, would clear away any misconceptions, affirm the, the truths that we hold dear. and and strengthen us, that we might go and tell, just as the shepherds did. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up going to Fenway Park in the late 70s. You see, and when the Yankees came to town, it was a little bit different in Fenway Park. I saw some ugly scenes in Fenway Park. I was I remember one time my dad and I went and we were down the first baseline, bout in the outfield, and they were merciless to Reggie Jackson. They were just heaping verbal abuse upon this poor guy, and then I saw fights breaking out in the crowd. And that's a little bit much when you're, you know, an early teenager. You didn't see that if you watched it on T V you saw basically sort of a sanitized version of the game. You didn't really hear the crowd noise back then particularly, and you wouldn't hear the insults and the vulgarities that were hurled at players on the Yankees. And you didn't always, they didn't have the producer who would bring in the camera and show the fight in the stands that erupted. That, that, that didn't exist. Christmas is sort of like that. We've kind of created this sanitized version of Christmas, in the birth story, uh, sort of almost you can re- see it reflected in Martin Luther's hymn "Away in a Manger." The baby, no crying, he makes. It's like, what child is that? <laughs> it takes sort of the human realities out of this, and uh, you know, when, we, when we think about, particularly where he was born, okay, a stable. Okay. Now, in, in that day and in, in that town, what would happen? Since this was in town, they would have basically something similar to my house—a two-story house—and instead of me, instead of having a garage like I have, that would be the stable. It was downstairs, and, right? So no one could steal your livestock. You'd hear them. You wake up. You'd go down. And so basically, this is an impromptu delivery of a baby in a stable. There's no time to get the power washer out and clean this thing out. Okay. And his first guests who showed up were shepherds. And where had they been? In the fields. Probably for weeks. If we sent you out into the Suaro National Forest for a couple of weeks, you probably wouldn't come back smelling rosy, right? And we throw into the reality of a birth. Don't know how many of you guys have been part of that thing. I saw a little more than I wanted to see when my daughter was born. You know, so we've really kind of cleaned this whole thing up. But not only have we cleaned up sort of the events around his birth, but we've sometimes sanitized his life, and sometimes we, as a result, sanitize our lives. But what happens here is we see that when we look at this text, this is a a foreshadowing, it's a glimmer of what's about to take place through the rest of Matthew's gospel, that the Messiah and his people, by extension, are despised. Let's make sense of that in in a very short period of time. The context, for those of you who uh, have been sick or out of town or whatever, as we look through Matthew, his, his account focuses on a few things. First, that Jesus is the son of David and Abraham and as a result of being the son of David and Abraham, fulfills the covenant promises that God made to those two uh, figures in Old Testament history. He focuses on the fact that Jesus is fully human. He is born of Mary. He's a real human being. But he is also fully divine because he has been begotten by the Holy Spirit. This is a unique individual. There is no one else like this person named Jesus. I forgot to put down in my notes, his name is Jesus precisely because the angel told Joseph to name him Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. So he comes as a savior as well as a king to be a blessing to the nations. God continually directs Joseph through the use of dreams here in, in, uh, in Matthew's gospel. We see that God is in control Okay? None of the things that are going on take him by surprise, and, and he's always at work to protect his son. We see that Jesus' birth and life fulfilled the word of God that was given through the prophets. That's one of the the, the, famous, or the consistent things that Matthew talks about. And this fulfilled the word that was given to the prophet so-and-so. It's a a theme that goes not just early on in the Gospel, but continues throughout the rest of the Gospel. We also see, lastly, that Jesus, as the true Israel, brings believing Gentiles into the true Israel. So that's kind of what's going on. That leaves me with two points. See? A discount night. (laughs) Because it's night, and kids are going to bed soon. Jesus was despised from childhood, suffering for our salvation. This is part of, of what he endured for our sake that we might experience, that we would receive this salvation that he came to procure for us. If we remember from Sunday that Jesus was in exile in Egypt because Herod was, was killing all of the boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding areas as well. So uh, God warned Joseph in a dream and he, he made his way over to Egypt, hiding there from the hit squads of Herod the Great. And I was reminded a little bit of you know Trotsky when he escaped from uh, Lenin and Stalin and how they sent the hit squad squad to kill him anyway. So that's sort of uh, something similar to what's going on here, trying to eliminate this, this uh, threat to the throne of Herod the Great. Uh, but here we are in Egypt, and Joseph has another dream. He has the dream in which it is revealed to him that Herod has died. So this is 4, maybe 3 BC, you know, maybe they... I don't know if God gave time for the dust to settle there in Judea, but either way, he's told that Herod the Great has died and it is now safe to return to Israel. He must come out of his exile and be back among his people. And so Jesus at that point is probably two to three years old. Not very old. Not time for him to partake of the secrets of the the magicians in Egypt as we talked about on Sunday. But then this, par- this problem pops up again, and that is that Archelaus, the, one of the sons of Herod, one of the ones that he didn't kill, is alive and is now the Tetrarch of Judea. He is basically mini-me for Herod. Okay? He is as evil, as ruthless as his father, but he is far less competent than his father was. And so what happens is he takes power in 4 B.C., and by the time 6 A.D. comes around, Rome says, we've had enough of this dude, (laughs) and they removed him from power. Okay, That's because he was incompetent. But still, Joseph is afraid. He knows that this guy is pretty much as bad as his dad. He's not sure what to do. He knows that Jesus will stand out in Bethlehem, the the city of the great king. He's not sure what direction he should move in. And Joseph has another dream. Isn't that great that Joseph's puzzled and God lets him know what to do? I sometimes wish he'd do that. But then again, I'm not carrying or or moving around with the infant Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, with me. So it's far less important that I get a dream that lets me know what to do. So you get it, kind of, don't you? So this dream comes to Joseph, and what he ends up doing is he heads north to Galilee. That's where he came from. That's where he and Mary were living before the census forced them to go down to Bethlehem in the first place. So they basically go back from whence they had come. But we see here the first few years of Jesus life he's living essentially as the child of refugees. I kind of thought of that as we're talking about the Tucson Refugee Ministry and I mean here here's our savior was a refugee for part of his life. He knows that. He's experienced that. For our sake, he was a refugee. Now, Galilee was was ruled by Herod Antipas, who, which, who is uh, Archelaus' half-brother, and he is sort of like evil light, you know, half the taste, half the evil, you know. He's, just, he's not as bad. He's, he's sort of the almost reasonable Herod. Uh, you know, when we get later on, when John, John the Baptist is around, we see that he's not all that good of a guy, but he's not as bad as his dad was, and he's not as bad as his half-brother was. Okay, so he's bad, but not really bad, so they're they're able to kind of hide in uh, in Galilee, particularly in nazareth so but here we find this shift in the formula, which is very confusing for people. We find this strange place, the same statement. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, how many of you have tried to find that verse in your Bible? I knew you would. (laughs) Not a shocking surprise to me. Okay, Is he the only one besides Steve? You will find no verse that says this. The formula has to... That's... What's important to know is that the formula has changed. He's not saying, and this fulfills the word of the prophet Isaiah, or this this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet. He says prophets. And so what he's doing is he's not quoting one particular verse, but what he's doing is he's summarizing something that is there throughout the rest of Scripture. And what we find throughout the rest of Scripture is not he's going to be from Nazareth. But what we find really is that he is going to be despised. That is the message we find through a number of the prophets. For instance, the 22nd Psalm. We see, I am but a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. And, of course, Jesus quotes from this Psalm when he is upon the cross. And so it was really was pointing towards him. He is the one who is despised by people. He is the one who was mocked. We see this as well in, a, in one of the famous passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant, and uh, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. So at that point you're going, okay, he's not incredibly handsome, big deal. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so this passage from Isaiah, which looks for the suffering servant of the Lord, who is the Messiah, talks about this reality that he was despised, that people didn't even want to look upon him. We tend not to think about that a whole lot, do we? That's one of those things we've taken our little racer to and and made our euro jesus sometimes a beautiful looking jesus that we don't find talked about in scripture. So we see even in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is essentially rejected by the majority of his people. I mean, remember in Matthew's gospel who showed up? The Magi, the Gentiles. All the religious people in Jerusalem who who had been astir when they heard this news that the king had been born, there's no record of them coming. In Luke's gospel, who comes? The shepherds. What do we know about shepherds, aside from the fact that they don't really smell that good? They were like one of the low stratas of Israelite society. They were like a couple steps above the tax collectors. They were still Jews, but they were considered to be rabble-rousers and not very trustworthy, and they were down there on the social strata. They were despised by the common person, and especially despised by those who had wealth and power. They might employ a shepherd, but they didn't associate and hang out and have a brew at the pub with one of the shepherds. Despised. It's the despised people who show up when Jesus is born. And it sort of continues through that. Through that. In fact, when Nathanael you know, is, is finds out that his friend has discovered the Messiah, and it says, he's from Nazareth, what does Nathanael say? Could anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, Nazareth, our imaginary map. <laughs> Jerusalem, Bethlehem. Nazareth is up here. It's among the Gentiles. Okay? It was like a a blended neighborhood. You had different races in that same neighborhood. There were a lot of Gentiles in us and some Jews in that in that town. Nothing good was coming from that town. It'd be like Hoboken, New Jersey. Has anything good ever come from Hoboken, New Jersey? I don't know the place in Arizona, but I'm sure there's a place in Arizona that people would say, nothing good ever comes from, what's the place? (laughs) Stafford. Stafford? Stafford? See, they don't even have a good name. (laughs) Stafford. Nothing good comes from Stafford, Arizona. That's the kind of place Nazareth was. This is on the wrong side of the tracks, and there's the wrong people there, and there's no way in the world that the Messiah is going to come from there. And yet he did. Because he was the man of sorrows, Jesus suffered not just at the end of his life, but all through his life. And he suffered not for us, I mean, uh, you know, not for himself, but rather for us. Okay? Okay? So we see that the Christmas story is not a warm, the warm, fuzzy thing that sometimes we think it is. But the Son of God left glory to come to a sin-filled world. Not to, from all outward appearances, rule over it, but to be part of the lower class. To be among those who are despised and looked down upon. So Jesus was not welcomed with open arms by humanity and especially Israel. He met ridicule and hatred for us. So let's talk about what, okay, that's for him, but what about us? Well, those who are joined to Jesus by faith are despised with him. We, we tend to lose track of this. We, here in America, we tend to have this sort of celebrity Christian deal. You know, um, we we want to be found with the beautiful people. We we have been kind of we've kind of merged the American dream into uh, Christianity, and, and it gets really fuzzy and blurry. And we don't realize that Christianity is not the same thing as the American dream. And so we we want to be found with the the elite. And the, the, the socially important people. And we think Jesus would kind of hang out with those people normally. We can, we can get that mindset. We have people talking about how you can have your best life now. Okay? Those celebrity Christians. That's not what I read in Scripture. Scripture. And that's not just what Jesus didn't experience, but that's not what I read in Scripture in terms of what we're to experience. I I think of things like Matthew ten. Jesus prepared his disciples for the opposition that they were they would face. We find this a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus is preparing his disciples for the fact that they have hated me, how much more they're going to hate you. And what happens in the book of Acts, we see them tossed in prison, we see them beaten, they're hated, they're despised. Those lousy people who follow Jesus of Nazareth, that's who they're seen as. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, the very last chapter of that, actually invites us to join Jesus outside of the city in his disgrace. Let's look at that. Let me read from that for a moment. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go outside, let's go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let's bear that too. That's where we belong. And he goes on to talk about how we're we're looking for a better city. The city that Abraham was looking for, the city whose builder and architect was God. We weren't made for the the city of man. Let's not pretend like we have to really fit in here. But let us, when it necessary, endure the shame, the reproach that he bore when necessary, okay? Not just that, but we see Paul, Philippians, okay? One of my favorite books of the Bible. But we see in Philippians chapter 1, he says, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ Jesus, not only to believe on him, some good predestinarian stuff right there, uh, yeah, we, we Calvinists, we like that, right? Okay, it's been granted for us to believe on him, <clears throat> but we don't stop, we don't, I mean, we stop reading. We don't continue reading because it says, um, but also to suffer for him. Not liking that part so much, huh? Okay. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. And so remember, Paul is writing to the Philippians from prison. And they knew that he had in the past endured persecution for the name of Jesus. They know that he is enduring persecution at that point because he's in prison, obviously. Um, It's not because he was a criminal, but because he followed Jesus. But Paul knew that they also were beginning to endure persecution in Philippi. And he says, this is not a mistake. It has been appointed to you by God himself. Walk in it. Be faithful in it. And so then later on in Philippians three, right after he gives his great stuff about you know all all those earthly attainments and titles that I had, it's all rubbish. So that and I cast it away, so that I might know Christ. And he says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul recognized that this following Jesus thing was kind of scary. It brought us into some dangerous places, and it meant that we were not welcome some places. Okay? Because we're united with him, we share the reproach that he had. 2001, when I went to New Jersey to visit a great friend of mine, and lo and behold... There's my future wife. I had tickets. Red Sox, Yankees, Yankee Stadium. I had my new Red Sox hat that my future wife gave me. I'm excited. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about all those games in Fenway Park. (laughs) What awaits me in Yankee Stadium? The scorn that is given to the Red Sox is also given to those who are united to the Red Sox by their love of the team. Fortunately for me, it was a day game, which means that it wasn't packed, and the people weren't drunk yet. I escaped okay. (laughs) All right, it might have been worse uh, if it wasn't. Um, So I guess I'm glad that the game Amy and I were supposed to go to was rained out, and we didn't go. So she didn't, by virtue of being with me, get abused. Uh, with stuff tossed on her or anything like that. But you see, because we're united to him, we experience what he experienced. Okay? And that makes us uncomfortable for us. Uh, you know, we're uncomfortable with being... Mart- I mean, who wants to be low on the totem pole? Really? Come on. Who wants who wants to, to be a martyr? You know, who wants to be ostracized? Don't you remember that one kid in high school? For those of you old enough to be in high school have been in high school. You know, who wants to be that kid who's always picked on? We don't like that. We're glad we're not that guy. And if you were that guy or that girl, you know what it's like. I, w- I was sharing with Chris the other day a little bit about my experiences, you know, on the bus. Three years on the bus for middle school, among the, th- the worst three years of my life. I don't know Why? I had a bullseye on my, not in school, but just on the bus. Particularly the last year, I'm supposed to be on the top of the totem pole now. I'm in ninth grade, right? Well, there's this seventh grader who's a football player who decides that he needs to show everyone that he's tough, and he looks around, and apparently his eyes fell upon me. (laughs) And so I'm the guy that he decided to try to pick a fight with all year long. If there was one seat left on the bus, he wouldn't let me sit, and it was next to him. Inevitably, it was next to him. He wouldn't let me sit there, and so we would spend the whole way home you know, throwing elbows at each other and pushing and shoving and trying to get on the seat and all this kind of stuff. And if I was in the seat and there was nothing else left and he had to sit there, he tried to throw me out. Marginalized. We don't like that. don't like it in middle school. We don't like it as adults. However, we do belong to the marginalized Messiah. But here's the good news of this. We're not alone. He is with us, even as we suffer with him and for him. I read the Hebrews 13 this morning, and it, it says there, to, to not love money but to be content with what you have. And then how does he explain that to the people uh, that he's writing to? He says, for I am with you always. I will never leave you nor forsake you. What what he was trying to tell them was, you have Christ. That's enough. Don't get thinking that money is going to make your life beautiful. Uh, We can apply it right here as well he will never leave us nor forsake us he is with us in the midst of this he strengthens us in the midst of this and it is only when we love him more than we love everything else because he is the only one who died for our sins money doesn't die for your sins your your favorite sports team not going to die for your sins not going to die for your period you know uh, your technology not going to save you from anything. It will just demand of you. But he did. And he promises to be with us even when we are marginalized. Okay. So Jesus I think was about as welcome in this world as a Red Sox fan in Yankee Stadium at any time during his earthly ministry. We cannot really when we look at scripture romanticize our relationship with Jesus. If we are with him, we will be treated like he is. We will be despised, we will be rejected, we will be marginalized. We are not above him, we're not better than him. But this was actually part of his suffering for our salvation. So, can you embrace the marginalized, despised Messiah instead of the sanitized one. Let's pray. Father, your text brings us into that uncomfortable place because he was a Nazarene. And he was from a podunk, backwoods, despised part of Israel. And he endured that for us. Help us to love him for it. To trust him because of it. To cling to him when we're also in the middle of it. For he has overcome the world. And he can surely sustain us. So help us to keep not just our faith in Him, but our hope resting in Him and Him alone. For it is His name we pray. Amen.